This is the Bird Hugger Podcast with Katherine Greenleaf, the podcast for people who love birds. Welcome to the Bird Hugger Podcast. I'm Katherine Greenleaf, and I'm so glad to be with you. I'm on board for a full 30 minutes of talking all things birds and restoring native habitat. What happens when a burnt-out college professor living in New England decides to become a wildlife rescuer and rehabilitator? Find out on Bird Hugger, the podcast for people who love birds. Join host Katherine Greenleaf, who has been rehabilitating injured wildlife for 20 years, and hear how you can turn your backyard into a native oasis for birds. Hello there. I hope you're all doing well. The last week has been a busy one, but I'm trying to get all of my fall native plantings into the ground. It's important to get them planted early enough so they have a chance to set down some roots before the first frost. Then in October, I will tackle the bare root plants. More on that in the weeks to come. I think we've got a great show for you today. Today, we'll be talking to aquatic biologist Angela Shambau about the growing problem of cyanobacteria in lakes and ponds. This is an issue that directly impacts the health of wild birds. Birds depend on fresh water to drink for their survival. And there are several things all of us can do to help keep bodies of water clean and healthy for wildlife and for humans, too. And now I'd like to introduce aquatic biologist Angela Shambau. She has been active in the fields of phytoplankton ecology and water quality since 1986, working for both the state of Vermont and the University of Vermont. She was instrumental in the development of a cyanobacteria monitoring protocol for Lake Champlain, and that protocol is now being used in the monitoring of all water bodies in the state of Vermont. She currently serves as co-chair of the North American Lake Management Society's Inland Harmful Algal Blooms Committee, and she has recently retired from the Lakes and Ponds Program with the Vermont Department of Environmental Conservation. Angela, I'd like to welcome you to the Bird Hugger Show. Could you please tell our listeners about your background in dealing with issues like cyanobacteria on lakes? Yeah, I've been involved in water quality and water protection for more than 30 years now. Um, in graduate school, I serendipitously decided to study cyanobacteria, and um, it led me down the path that I've taken. I worked in a private consulting firm here in Vermont, starting looking at cyanobacteria on Lake Champlain. I've worked as a university research associate, also looking at cyanobacteria on Lake Champlain. And most recently, I worked in the Lakes and Ponds program at the Vermont Department of Environmental Conservation. And one of the things that I was focused on was cyanobacteria. So I've been involved in this topic for quite some time. And can you tell our listeners about uh, what your job entailed at these various agencies? Sure. As a private consultant, I would talk with folks about managing private ponds. We also collected water samples from Lake Champlain looking at uh, algal composition. And at the university, we were looking at the occurrence of cyanobacteria on Lake Champlain, trying to understand the, the reasons why uh, it appeared to be increasing and also building a monitoring program for cyanobacteria that would help people around the lake know when cyanobacteria is a problem. So Lake Champlain uh, lies between Vermont, New York, and a small part is in Quebec, and it has a lot of shoreline. And so lots of people potentially coming in contact with cyanobacteria. So a monitoring program was important. 
can you tell us what exactly is cyanobacteria? So cyanobacteria is a photosynthetic organism, microscopic, typically found in aquatic environments. So in water, can be rivers or ponds, lakes or streams. Typically, it's microscopic. You don't necessarily notice it unless there's a bunch of it present. Under certain circumstances, it can grow very rapidly and very abundantly. And it has the ability in some cases to rise up to the surface of the water and form a visible scum at the surface. And so that's when it starts to catch our attention. A lot of times we don't know that it's there. It's an old organism. It's been around for millions of years. Uh, It's believed that cyanobacteria probably was the organism that first figured out how to do photosynthesis. So figured out how to capture sun energy and turn it into the, the food it needed. And as a result, it became very, very, very abundant early on and has continued to be an important part of ecosystems ever since. Now, what causes a cyanobacteria outbreak? They're often there. They can, they're usually present in low numbers. Uh, I would, there are very few water bodies probably here in the Northeast that don't have cyanobacteria present at some point of the year at low levels. They are very well adapted for certain water conditions. Um, They tolerate warmer water more than other algae do. They also thrive in water that is still, so not a lot of waves and relatively quiet water. And under situations like that, some species have small internal gas bubbles that allow them to rise up to the surface so they can get a better access to sun. And then they can regulate the buoyancy and drop back down to the bottom of the river or the stream or the pond and the lake to get the nutrients that they need to grow. They're very good at gathering nutrients and they thrive in waters that have a lot of nutrients. Typically, locations like that are are kind of, the water's often cloudy with sediment. They're usually quiet and very warm, and those are perfect conditions for cyanobacteria. So it sounds to me like the perfect conditions for a cyanobacteria outbreak would be a hot, sunny day, even a heat wave, a series of hot, sunny days with little to no wind and no rain to break up the outbreak. Okay. Yep, that's those that's the classic situation and usually, you know, you usually you'll see the levels are increasing. You'll see more particulates in the water. There's a little bit the water's a little bit less clear and then under those right conditions again if if it's calm and hot and sunny, cyanobacteria want to be at the top of the water because that's where they're getting their sunlight to make their food and they'll float right up there. I should also mention there are cyanobacteria that grow on the bottom of rivers and ponds, lakes and streams. They don't tend to form those scums at the surface and they don't typically have that buoyancy regulation. They can grow abundant enough that their photosynthesis produces enough oxygen to trap the oxygen bubbles within the mat that forms and they can rise to the surface that way. But they typically don't grow at the surface of the water. Now tell me, why are we hearing more and more about cyanobacteria and the outbreaks. Is it because of climate change? There's a lot of factors at play here. The biggest reason that we're concerned about cyanobacteria is because some of the species have the ability to produce very potent toxins. These cyanotoxins are harmful to people. They're harmful to pets and animals. They can be harmful to wildlife. And there are more and more reports each year, particularly of pets and farm animals, and some wildlife that are 
ingesting, drinking, or eating cyanobacteria, they get sick. And in some cases, they do die. People can be affected. To date, we don't have a lot of reports of people being seriously ill, but because of, you know, because these organisms are producing a cyanotoxin in a place where people may gather on a shore at a beach, we want to make sure that people know all about them. Right. And it particularly can sicken birds like loons that eat the fish that are affected by the cyanobacteria. It can. There's a lot. So the research is still, there's so much research going on. We don't understand how it moves through the food web. We do know that organisms and creatures that consume it directly can be affected. There have been instances where birds are affected after drinking the water that contains cyanobacteria. You know, I don't know enough about the loons in particular, but there's certainly a lot of research going on under trying to understand how it moves through the food web and may be affecting things that we don't necessarily think of as being connected. Right. And I have heard that there are some studies showing that exposure to cyanobacteria can potentially cause ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease? There is research ongoing on that as well. Right now, there's a lot of discussion about that connection. So I would encourage listeners to read more about it. It's a bit of a controversy, if you will. There are some folks that believe very strongly that is the case, and there are others that say that connection is not so well-defined. So the research is still out, um, and it's a very active field of, of inquiry. What does cyanobacteria look like? Like if I were at a favorite lake that I like to go swimming in, and what, what is it I would see that would alert me that there's a problem? So cyanobacteria have gone by a couple of different names in the past. One of the most common ones was blue-green algae. Algae is a, a general term for photosynthetic organisms floating in the water, usually microscopic. And for uh, quite some time, we, we thought that cyanobacteria were closely related to some of the green algae. But we know better now. We have a better understanding that they are more like bacteria, so hence the name cyanobacteria. But the term blue-green came from their pigments. Um, they, have in it, they have chlorophyll, which is the pigment that makes grass green, but they also have a bluish pigment called phycocyanin. So often, planktonic bloom on a lake will come to the surface and it will look not quite green, but very blue-green. And as it bakes in the sun, sometimes it can bake enough that the cells break open and the chlorophyll disappears and you see a bright blue pigment on the water. Often our first indication that cyanobacteria were present was someone calling in a, a paint spill or a, a toxic chemical spill because the colors were so vivid and unusual. Wow. So how does it differ from, say, normal algae that might be floating on the lake surface? It's one of those things that takes a little practice to identify. I'm going to point you to a, a guide that's available online right now through the Interstate Technology and Regulatory Council. It's called the Visual Guide to Common Cyanobacteria, and I can send you the link so that you can post that later. It shows lots of pictures of cyanobacteria. Typically, cyanobacteria, when it forms a scum on the water surface, looks a little bit like that spilled paint. Um, it, it can be a, a pool of, of color. It can be ribbons of color, depending on how the wind and the currents are going. It's at the surface. If you take a stick into it and let, try to lift it out of the water on a stick or a kayak paddle, it'll often coat that stick or kayak paddle. You won't see any hairs. You won't see any clumps, usually. 
it really does kind of look like paint or oily color on the water. The benthic mats of cyanobacteria that can form will be chunks. Again, often you'll see that typical blue-green color. As you start to look more closely, that color becomes more obvious sometimes. But they'll form mats. And again, you can lift them out of the water with a stick, but they break apart very easily. They don't hang down with long filaments. They don't look like hair. Uh, They really do look a lot like paint on the water. Sort of like a bluish-green? Yeah, it's a bluish-green. There are lots of different species, so depending on where you are and which time in the summer, you may also see some cyanobacteria that can be red. They have a different pigment called phycoerythrin that causes them to be red. Some blooms can be tan, and some can can be kind of an olive brown as well. But basically, you're kind of looking for the structure. Green algae is typically going to be hairy. Uh, If you lift it out of the water on the stick, it's going to drape over the stick or you're going to see those hairs in the material, Uh, whereas a cyanobacteria will will look more like little tiny dots and act more like paint. Now, tell me, what is the level of exposure or danger-wise? If I were were in a kayak and I did not kayak Mm -hmm. into the bloom, would I still be at risk of becoming ill? Like so many things, it depends on um, your own personal sensitivity. In general, it seems that to become ill, you need to actually drink or consume water with cyanobacteria in it. Some people, however, are very sensitive to the smell of cyanobacteria. I've spoken with some folks that start to get kind of tight throat and coffee, kind of allergic, you know, asthma type feelings when they smell cyanobacteria. So it can really depend on who you are and your own personal physiology. But in general, in general, to become seriously sick, you do need to consume, you know, to consume the water or the cyanobacteria. I should add that some species also produce compounds that can cause skin rashes and skin irritations. So if you are paddling or swimming, for example, uh, in a bloom and, and, you know, you get some of that on your skin, you may be sensitive enough to get rashes or or, um, other skin irritation as a result. Mm -hmm. Okay. So let's say I'm I'm swimming and I accidentally swim through a cyanobacteria bloom. What is the best course of action? So usually we we recommend that you come out and shower and mm-hmm. you don't need to use soap or any any you know you just want you want to get that off your skin. Um, first of all, I'd I'd really strongly recommend that if you see the water is highly discolored in any way, you know, a, a greenish or even a blue greenish, um, it's best just not to go in at all. Over you know, my many years of working with cyanobacteria, I've been exposed on my legs and hands with, with no adverse issues. Um, again, wash your hands before you eat. Rinse yourself off when you come out. Right. And as far as pets go, if you see it, it's not a good idea to let your dog go into the water because they may drink the water. Yeah. And you know, uh, my dog eats some of the things that I, I can never quite understand what attracts her. Um, <laughs> but you, know, you never know what they're going to consume. And in addition to drinking water on a hot day, you know, most dogs, when it's hot and they've been running around on the beach, you know, they go into the water and they drink very large amounts of water. Or if they're fetching a stick, they can't help but drink water. If they've gone swimming and they come out, they tend to lick their fur and fur can act like a big sieve as well. So if there's cyanobacteria on their fur and then they start licking their fur, they get the cells inside their stomach and the stomach acids is strong enough to break open the cell and release any potential toxins. So ideally, you know, you don't want your dog uh, in water. Again, that looks 
scummy or if uh, if your local you know municipality has posted a sign of bacteria watch you know you want to make sure you you look at the water carefully before you let your dog in right the other thing to think about is that they also eat things washed up on the shoreline so some of the dog deaths that have been associated with these bottom dwelling cyanobacteria have come about when those pieces that broke loose washed up on the shoreline and dried out and the dogs played with them and ate them um, so along a river or a stream or a lake or a pond where your local watch has indicated there may be cyanobacteria present, you also want to make sure they don't eat anything. Right. And the same for kids and grandkids. If you see anything, you really don't want to let them go into the water. Um, exactly. Right. Yep. Yeah. Children, smaller bodies, you know, it doesn't take as much um, to affect them. Their skin is often more sensitive to chemicals and, and they may end up with rashes and irritations earlier. Um, and plus, all, you know, a, a strong sign of bacteria bloom is really goopy and a lovely color. So it's it's very interesting. So it's really good as a parent or a grandparent to, to scout the beach first. Right. Now, a cyanobacteria bloom, how long can you expect a single bloom to last? Is it several days or a week? So that's, it's really difficult to say. It depends on the water. It depends on the weather. Here in Vermont, often our blooms can come and go in a matter of hours. Again, cyanobacteria are rising to the top because they want sunlight. And if it's calm at 11 o'clock in the morning, the cyanobacteria can be at the surface. But if the wind comes up at, at noon or one, it can stir it in and the water may look quite nice again. So it depends on your location. Typically, the higher the nutrients are in your water, so the more nitrogen, usually the more phosphorus that's present in your water means that a, the cyanobacteria can grow more abundantly and a bloom will last longer. And in some right. cases, that can be for weeks. Right. So tell me now, what can we do to prevent these cyanobacteria outbreaks? I have several friends that own lakefront property and they spend their summers on their favorite lake. And, you know, what I'm hearing from them is they're somewhat dismayed because their time that they can spend in the water is getting shorter and shorter. Whereas they, they may have had one cyanobacteria bloom each summer. Now it's two and three and four blooms on the same lake throughout the yeah. course of the summer, which is really impacting the quality of life yeah. for, for lakefront homeowners. Yeah. And, and lakefront homeowners also should be, you know, be thinking about where they're getting their water in their camp. Um, if their lake is uh, potentially subject to blooms, in addition to not swimming in it, you also don't want to be pulling that water into your cabin and using it to shower with later. I have talked to folks about that as well. The factors that are promoting cyanobacteria growth are certainly connected to our changing climate. As water warms, we have a longer growing season for cyanobacteria. So here in the Northeast, we often didn't see cyanobacteria in the early 90s. We might see cyanobacteria starting around 4th of July. Uh, but our waters are warming earlier now here, and, and we're getting reports of cyanobacteria in, in mid-June sometimes. Waters are also staying warmer later into the fall. And so blooms can persist later into the fall. We used to finish with our monitors for the Labor Day weekend. We didn't need to have too many eyes on the lake after the Labor Day weekend, but now we have eyes on the lake going into October. So climate change is definitely one of those things. 
The other thing is nutrients. A nutrient like phosphorus is present in all sorts of different places. It's it's present in the sediment that's washing off of the land. It's present in the lawn fertilizers that we're using, in the compost we're putting on our garden, in the stormwater that flows out of our, you know, down our streets and, and down into the sewers and out into the rivers. So one of the things that we really push to control cyanobacteria, particularly in lakes and ponds, is working to keep the nutrient sources under control. The less nutrients, the less phosphorus that's available for cyanobacteria, the less they can grow. You can only grow as much as you have that available source. An example that I saw a graduate student uh, use many years ago now was thinking about making a cake. If you're gonna make your cake, you need a certain number of eggs, a certain amount of milk, a certain amount of flour. If you've only got two eggs and your recipe calls for four, you can only make a half cake. So you can only grow as many cyanobacteria as, as nutrients are available. The less we feed them, the less they can grow. Now, I understand that a malfunctioning septic system can also contribute to the formation of cyanobacteria. Again, a septic system is, is a way of managing the nutrients that are coming out of your house. And so if your septic system is not working properly, and typically that means that water's passing through it quickly without being able to be treated by the bacteria in the tank, then those nutrients are reaching the lake or the river or stream, and they will they will feed cyanobacteria. So septic system maintenance around a you know around a lake or a pond or a river is is really important, not just for cyanobacteria because it can also encourage nuisance aquatic plant growth and things like that. But it is definitely an important thing to think about. Now, in my research for preparing for this interview, I actually learned that a seasonal home, like a cottage or home on a lake, has a higher proportion of malfunctioning septic systems because a septic system needs a consistent temperature inside the tank all year round. And if it's not used for half the year, it's like a lot of lakefront homeowners arrive on Memorial Day weekend and they leave Labor Day weekend and everything is shut down for the winter. When they come back, chances are pretty good that they may end up developing septic problems that can lead to effluvium and rolling down the lawn into the lake. Yeah, maintaining septic systems and making sure they're functioning is a task that you should be paying attention to all the time between tree roots getting into, you know, into your leach field, uh, folks driving across your leach field instead of avoiding it, things like that are all connected. So understanding how your septic system works, knowing how old your septic system is, and understanding where the leach field is relative to your lake or pond and relative to groundwater can all be very important. And if you do buy an older, say, a cottage on a lake, and it ha- has a cesspool, doesn't even have a septic system, it would be very wise to have an up-to-date modern septic system installed. Yeah, putting in a new septic system is not an inexpensive proposition, but it's one of the best things that you can do to protect your lake, because there are a lot of things that go into your septic system that you don't even think about in addition just to nutrients, right? All your sh- all your soaps, all your cleaning supplies, all of these things are going into your septic system and they eventually make it out to your lake. So the best system you have in place does the best job of cleaning things up, does the best job for protecting your lake. Right. Now, I also wanted to ask you about fireworks. A lot of people like to aim their fireworks toward the water at night, <laughs> And I, I know fireworks are, have, some of them have a lot of phosphorus in them. 
most of the colors in fireworks are due to specific kinds of metals like copper and and things like that. That gives the firework its particular color. Uh, just like any other pollutant, it's best not to do that because all of that stuff does end up in the lake. The paper wrappings are there, the gunpowder that lit the fuse, the wooden uh, stems and things that your fireworks are on. Really, it's best not to best not to do that. Right. And another big issue, I believe, is impervious surfaces. You know, the asphalt driveways and parking lots and the, even the yeah. asphalt roads that lead to these the lakes and people's homes create a fairly challenging problem because all that water has nowhere to go. So where does it go? It runs right down into the lake and it takes with it motor oil, gasoline, other pollutants from the, the roads that we drive on, but also pet waste gets dragged in there and fertilizer. Yeah. And like you were saying, fertilizer and compost, it all ends up in the lake. Yeah. And impervious surface means basically that water can't pass through it that water must flow over the top of it in order to, to reach soil where it can penetrate. So impervious surface isn't just asphalt and cement. It can be your driveway to your camp that you've been driving, you know, that someone's been driving on for 30 years. That ground can get so packed down that water can't seep in. One of the best ways to clean water before it reaches a river or a pond or a lake is to allow water to seep in to the soil. So the soil acts like a big sponge, like a big strainer. The bacteria and, and organisms, microorganisms that live in the soil can make a pretty good stab at, at eating up some of the things that we would prefer not to make it into a lake or a pond or a river. So having a place for your stormwater to run off that hard packed dirt or your paved driveway, sit for a while and settle into the ground before it makes it to your lake is one of the best ways that, that we can say um, for now to, to scrub the water, to keep it clean. There are a lot of resources online. Vermont has a program called Lake Wise. Maine has a program called Lake Smart. Uh, and there are others around the country that help you look at your property on a lakeshore and think about the places where there might be opportunities for improvement. So I'd encourage you to take a look at some of those sources. Right. I understand now that they make non-impervious paving stones. Yeah. For driveways. Yep. yep. It's funny. Um, my grandparents were European and, and their driveways in, in the Netherlands and in Germany were always pavers that were open in the middle so that water yeah. and, and things could soak through. Sometimes they can be a problem in a place where you get a lot of snow. So you'll want to investigate the kind of permeable paver or permeable concrete that you want to use. Make sure you, you uh, understand how it works and what's best for your climate. And I imagine rain gardens and rain barrels hooked up to your gutters can help prevent yep. the runoff. Yeah, rain gardens are great because, again, the, the whole point there is to, to slow it. Uh, slow the water down to let it seep in. And then the plants will use some of the nutrients that, that have been collected there. The sediments caught in your rain garden and will continue to provide nutrients for it as well. Rain barrels slow things down as well. But with some of these gully washes that we've had recently, my rain barrel overflows. So that may not be uh, the only solution. If you have a rain barrel, you might want to Make sure you know uh, where the secondary flow is going to go to during some of these heavy rainfalls. Right. But all of that stuff that slows the water down and allows it to seep into the ground rather than running into the nearest stream is great. The other thing we've found here in Vermont is 
when there's a lot of impervious surface, all of that water is running off fast and we have higher volumes during these bigger storms and that's scouring out the streams that the water is going through. So in addition to carrying what was on the ground originally, we're also damaging the stream banks and creating more erosion. Right, right. Well, if you could look into your crystal ball, I mean, with all the work and the research you've done on this topic, what are you seeing? What are your concerns for the future? I think people are going to have to get used to living with cyanobacteria, if you will. As climate warms, we're going to be creating conditions for them or conditions will be forming you know, that they like. We're going to see those longer growing seasons. We're going to see warmer waters. If we want to reduce the amount of planktonic cyanobacteria that we see, we really do need to work on nutrients. There's a lot of sources of nutrients. It's not a simple task to reduce the flow of sediment, phosphorus, nitrogen, and other things in water, because water is designed to carry all those things with it when it flows. So on your property, you know, or at your home or wherever you happen to be, be thinking about how water flows. Be thinking about what it might be carrying with it as it moves across your property and do your best to slow it down and let it sink in so that uh, those things are going into the soil and not into the water. Right. So I was going to say, you know, here in New Hampshire in the lakes region, people pride themselves on having many people, I shouldn't say all, but many people pride themselves on having the traditional long green lawn that sweeps down to the very edge of the water no native vegetation along the shoreline because that might impede the view. Mm-hmm. And I think, mm-hmm. I don't know if you agree with this or not, but to save our lakes and be able to enjoy our lakes for years to come, we're going to have to start making sacrifices. And that's going to mean planting vegetative barriers at the lake shore. It's going to mean turning that turf grass into native plant gardens and, and start planting some trees to absorb the water. I know a tree's roots can absorb thousands of gallons of water. I like to think of it not as a sacrifice so much as getting back to probably one of the original reasons that you like to come up to the lake in the first place, right? It's a peaceful, quiet place. The water is lovely. You've got plants and animals and trees that entice you down to the water. As we work on restoring lakeshore, one of the things that we do need to think about is figuring out how to get those trees and deep-rooted plants back down on the lakeshore. They act like a big sponge. Anything that's flowing downhill is going to be captured by those. As you mentioned, trees, tree roots, they need a lot of water to grow. And there are ways to have a great big tree in your lawn and still have a view. Again, if you look at uh, the work that's been put together in the Lake Smart program from Maine and the LakeWise program from Vermont, they talk about how you can maintain those trees and get yourself a view, right? You can cut lower limbs. You can selectively thin without removing all of the trees. There are ways to get both. But many of us want to come to a lake because we're looking for the birds, the ducks, the frogs, the fish, and they all need trees and plants to make the habitat that they need to survive and breed and grow a family. Uh, I like to think of it not as a sacrifice, but uh, as a returning to what was there before. That's great. Angela, I want to thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, this has been fun. I'd like to thank Angela Shambaugh for joining us today. 
Check our show notes for multiple resources regarding cyanobacteria blooms and what you can do to prevent them. Join Americans everywhere in the one-third for the birds movement. Dedicate the back third of your yard to birds and other wildlife. Make this area a quiet zone with no leaf blowers or lawnmowers. Plant native trees and shrubs so birds have plenty of insects to eat. Create a safe haven for birds to nest and raise their young. You will be rewarded with many hours of bird watching fun. For more information on One Third for the Birds, go to the Bird Hugger page on Facebook. And that's it for today's episode, everybody. Thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Have a great week and enjoy the birds. Bye for now. Bye for now.